most of the time through this uh, whole series on the Apostles' Creed, I've looked forward every week to, uh, with excitement to preaching on whatever the, the next phrase is going to be for that coming Sunday. Um, I've usually had some sort of an inkling about what the, the sermon might be about for each phrase, and, and I know that they are going to, for the most part, uh, remind us of some new and or wonderful and encouraging truth about God that we believe in. That's the way I have felt every week until this one. <laughs> And this week, I've had knots in my stomach a bit about how wrong this could all go and about igniting fear instead of peace and hope. I've been concerned about getting my thoughts sorted and my words right because this morning we've arrived at that phrase that is the most intensely controversial phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus descended into hell. In fact, this phrase is so controversial that some churches don't even say it, or they don't say it the same way uh, that we do. Some have changed the translation to read, he descended into death, or he descended into the dead. Other churches drop the phrase entirely, and they just go from, uh, crucified, dead, and buried. Third day, he rose again. But I think it does a disservice to us to avoid the straight-up language of hell and all the imagery associated with it. Because whether we like it or not, and whatever we believe about what it means, we can't avoid encountering the idea in the scriptures. It's all in there. The fire, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the flesh-eating worms. Nor should we, we can't avoid it, excuse me, we can't avoid it, nor should we. We shouldn't avoid the topic of hell because Jesus didn't avoid the reality of hell. And that is the whole point of this phrase in the creed. Whatever we think hell is, Jesus descended into it. Jesus entered fully into hell. Not, we don't say he descended near it. He descended toward it. Jesus entered fully into hell, descended into. And we know the rest of the story. He, on the third day, he rose and even ascended to the, to the right hand of God. He rose from his descent into hell because it could not overpower him. Whatever else we learn from this phrase, this we know. The life and the love of Jesus is greater than the fires of hell. What hell is exactly, no one alive, at least, knows. <laughs> Some of the greatest minds in the history of the church have completely disagreed with each other over this. Thomas Aquinas, the uh, 13th century Italian theologian, believed it was, it was sort of a realm, like the realm of the living, it was the realm of the dead. 
And sort of following on, along after him, after Aquinas, the great Italian poet Dante Alighieri wrote an epic poem, The Divine Comedy, and, and he has three books that covered hell, purgatory, and heaven. It's actually Dante's imagery of the realm of hell that has influenced Western understanding of hell more than almost anyone. On the other hand, the 16th century French reformer, John Calvin, believed that hell, that hell was not a realm, but it was kind of a, an existential state of being. James Kay, a professor from Princeton Theological Seminary, explains. Calvin's view was that the real referent for the descent into hell is not a mythical netherworld, but the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Calvin comments, surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God and when you call upon him not to be heard. In other words, Kay goes on, hell in the creed is defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. Hell is the state, for, for Calvin, hell is the state of God-forsakenness. Since there's no agreement on what hell actually is, there's also no agreement on what it means then to say that Jesus descended into it. There are some who believe that this is merely uh, an amplification of the truth that Jesus was dead and buried. Um, one of the, the church leaders of the fourth century, Rufinus, wrote, uh, its meaning appears to be precisely the same as that contained in the affirmation buried. So it's just another way of saying essentially that Jesus died was put into the grave. On the other hand, for those who believe that, that uh, hell is a realm of the dead and the devil, Jesus rising from there after entering into it is his first act essentially of resurrection as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ben Myers, who is an Australian the theologian, writes that uh, this is the understanding of, of a whole branch, a whole wing of the Christian church, Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy is the one that has a lots of icons, the stylized uh, paintings and pictures of, of Jesus and others. Uh, he, ben Myers writes, Eastern Orthodox iconography is especially attentive to this aspect of Christian hope. In Orthodoxy, the icon of the resurrection portrays a glorified Christ standing over the broken doors of hell. Beneath his feet, the chains and locks that have held the dead are all broken. The doors of hell have come unhinged. The grave has been emptied. An old man and an old woman stand on each side of Jesus. Adam and Eve are the two. Jesus has seized them by the wrists and raised them up from the shadowy underworld. This is what the phrase you may have heard, harrowing of hell, the harrowing of hell. That's what this refers to, is that Jesus entered into the devil's realm 
and set all the captives free. I will admit that I tend to side with those who believe that hell is a realm rather than an experiential state of God forsakenness and that Jesus entered fully into this realm and left as Lord and Savior, that it was a part, the initial part of the resurrection. I believe this primarily because of the way that Jesus himself and his followers speak of hell in the scriptures. The gospel passage this morning is from uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 49. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. This is why I didn't read it for all the kids. And if, uh, if I cause you nightmares, I'm sorry. If you're, this, because this is the one where it's really gruesome. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He, this is hyperbole, is what we say in the church. Uh, <laughs> pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's part of the reason why I was a little hesitant to read all of that uh, for everyone. But, but this is Jesus talking. And Jesus contrasts hell with the kingdom of God. To me, this speaks of a realm populated with other beings. And Jesus connects our experience of life in this world with life in hell. Peter's language in our New Testament also speaks to me of that sense of place. That one I did read, and he talks about how uh, Christ died and he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, etc. And he goes on with that. Notice how Peter describes both what Jesus did and when he did it, in that he was put to death, then made alive by the spirit, and went to speak to those. In fact, uh, he, he literally, it translates, he literally went to uh, proclaim, make proclamation to the imprisoned souls. He literally, Jesus went and preached the gospel to those uh, in, in prison, in soul, or in hell. This answers uh, questions that the psalmist in our, our Hebrew First Testament passage brought up centuries before Jesus. In this psalm, the psalmist declares, O Lord, the God who saves me day and night, I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is made full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave, literally shale, which was the, the place, uh, the underworld. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, 
I am like the man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, the, the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Then he asks these these questions. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? And Peter's answer is is yes. That's precisely what Jesus did, was go to show the, the, the wonders, to proclaim the good news that all are free. To, to extend forgiveness to all, even those that we don't like. <laughs> Jesus descended into hell precisely in order that all human beings might be saved. There are a lot of prominent Christian preachers and teachers who proclaim that There are relatively few people who will actually make it into heaven. Many of them will say that the only way into heaven is to proclaim specifically with the exact words, in this life, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And if you don't say that exact phrase in those exact words, I've never understood if it has to be in English or if it can be in your other languages, but... If you don't somehow say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior in this life, then you are damned to hell for eternity. For a more complete and thorough takedown of all those who proclaim that lie, that falsehood, I recommend two different books. One is called Raising Hell, like R-A-Z-I-N-G, Raising Hell, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About God's Wrath and Judgment by Sharon Baker. That's one I'm going to quote, actually, in just a moment. Amazing book. The other is That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation by David Bentley Hart. For now, let me just read uh, one small piece from Sharon Baker's book. She acknowledges, well, I remember many sermons in which the preacher thumped his fist on the pulpit and with a loud, firm voice asserted with confidence, only a remnant will enter the kingdom of heaven. The way is narrow that leads to life, and only a small number of people will find themselves on that road. Everyone else will walk the wide road that leads to destruction. From there on out, until the end of the sermon, we'd hear about the horrors of hell that most of the human race will suffer for all eternity. He based part of his argument on the notion that Sending the unrepentant to hell glorifies God because it serves divine justice. Think about it, Baker writes. Is eternal eternal punishment for temporal sins just? The logical answer is no. She goes on, in addition, 
Traditional views of hell diminish God's power to redeem all humanity. If billions of people suffer eternal damnation and separation from God, the effectiveness of sin, evil, and Adam's condemnation is greater than the effectiveness of God's grace through Jesus. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if hell is eternal tor- if hell as eternal torment is true, then God's mission of reconciliation through Jesus loses the full force of its effectiveness. If our traditional hell is real, God's power has not prevailed against evil, and God's power has not overcome sin. In fact, she goes on, if my old preacher is right, only one-third or less of the human population throughout all history will receive eternal life with God. Let's speak figuratively for the sake of an illustration that will help make our point. If we think about the number of people entering heaven as God's team and the number of people entering hell as the devil's team in terms of a football game and post the numbers on a scoreboard, it would look something like this. Devil, 666 billion. Notice Mark of the Beast, 666. 666 billion. God, 333 billion. God's team loses big time to hell. What does such a heavy loss say about God's power, about Jesus' work on the cross? In fact, traditional views of hell do not bring God glory. They usurp God's glory by diminishing God's power. Saying that only a relatively few make it to heaven makes God weak and Jesus' work almost nothing. That's not the God that we know. I don't think the authors of the Apostles' Creed added the phrase descended into hell in order to add another sort of embellishment on the fact that Jesus died. I think they wanted all followers of Christ to proclaim that Jesus descended into hell to remind us often that hell is a real realm of the next life, but Jesus has been there before us and harrowed it for us. Again, uh, a quote from James K. He writes, every future pro- uh, project." Every future projected apart from Jesus, meaning that something greater than Jesus, every future like that is doomed itself. It is, in fact, this hellish hellish future of opposition to the love of and redemption of God that Jesus Christ overcame on his cross and descent into hell, storming into it, eradicating its power, and ending its reign. In fact, Peter just came to mind. Peter says that at the, at the end of his, that Jesus descended into those in prison to preach the good news, and then God brought him to heaven over all powers and angels, even. 
The harrowing of hell is nothing less than the subjection of every power in us and in our world that denies, betrays, and crucifies the love that comes to set us free. This harrowing is the symbol of that final judgment by which our true freedom will be ratified. That Jesus Christ descended into hell is therefore the sum of our redemption. There's absolutely no possibility, he writes, for us and for creation that is beyond the reach of the triune God's unfathomable, I love that he uses this, unquenchable and irresistible love. Hellfire and damnation preachers love to frighten people with talk about the unquenchable fires of hell. But Jesus descended into hell and rose again. The love of God is the only unquenchable power. The life and love of Christ is greater than the fires of hell. I referenced earlier Dante's poem, The Divine Comedy. Well, in that first one, On Hell, the Inferno, at the very beginning, Dante, as the traveler in the story, arrives at the entrance to hell. And there he reads a sign uh, that has terrorized followers of Christ for centuries, as well as all the things that he describes after he goes in. It's a sign that feeds the myth of the traditional view of hell. In English, the sign translates, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. The Presbyterian pastor Scott Black Johnston reminds us of the truth. He writes, according to Dante, the gates of hell have an inscription above them that reads above, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Not so, says the community of apostles in the scriptures. Not so, states the apostles' creed. Not so, say Christians, whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed. The fires of hell cannot stand against the love of Christ. Thanks be to God.